All right, Bridge family, got a question for you. Do you know what's better than one movie? <laughs> On the right track, a trilogy of movies. If you don't know by now, clearly I am a movie lover. And so whenever I get an opportunity to preach, you know, we're going to sneak a movie or two in there. Um, my love for movies started way back when I was a kid. I actually uh, made friends with a local theater owner in my neighborhood. And he uh, basically agreed that if I went out and rented DVDs and VHS players, whatever he used to, you know, put in the projector and play, if I went and got them for him from a video store, he would let me in for free. So I got to see all kinds of American action movies as a kid. And that's one of the ways that I got to learn English. But more importantly, that's one of the ways that I fell in love with movies. And now as an adult, my love for movies has only grown. And so I said, a trilogy of movies is better than a movie. Um, here are some famous and iconic movie trilogies. There is the Godfather trilogy. The Spider-Man trilogy, the Matrix trilogy, the Dark Knight trilogy, which might be my favorite one. Uh, the Star Wars trilogy of trilogies, the Toy Story trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You are probably thinking of a set of three movies in your head that are a trilogy. One story told over three different parts. And before you think I'm all lost about, uh, in, in talking about movies, I want you to know that your Bible and our focus today is like a trilogy. And if you remember this, not only is your Bible knowledge going to increase, but you're going to be less confused and less stressed about what's happening in the Old Testament as you read it, and you will be prayerfully filled up for these stressful times that are ahead. We'll see a trilogy of stories in our Bible today. Uh, where our everyday heroes takes us. And in this trilogy of movies, and in, in trilogy of stories in the Old Testament, um, we get to see um, three different characters or three different people start something great. In this, uh, in this uh, series that we're doing, Everyday Heroes, we get to examine ordinary people doing Extraordinary, or extraordinary things in Jesus' name. This uh, series looks at real power for real people. And so I've called this message the Under Construction Trilogy. The Under Construction Trilogy. If you're in the chat room, you know what to do. Type it out. The Under Construction Trilogy. Pray with me, fam. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God who loves to do extraordinary things through normal and ordinary people. I pray that we are reminded of your greatness, Lord, of what you're doing in and through this church, this body united in your purpose, Lord. I pray that you remind us what our role is in bringing your goodness, your mercy, and your glory into the areas where we get to live, where we work, where we learn, and where we play. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've been in Everyday Heroes, a series that examines real power in real people. And today we get to talk about a trio of people who are real people in real situations, exercising real power after a real tragedy. Somebody say real. real. It's all real. Our scripture today comes from 
Ezra and Nehemiah. And I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know this before I started diving into this uh, as I'm getting ready for this message. But these books, though they are separate in the Bible that we hold in our hands today, when they were originally written, they were a unified work. So they were written as one, and years later they were separated because of the content in them. However, as we look at these two books um, today, we are going to talk about them as the one original book. That makes sense? You're with me? Okay, so um, we get to look at uh, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, or the text in Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is a story of a community of people under construction under construction. We are going to read uh, specific portions of it. We are not going to read all of it because that would be 23 chapters in Ezra and Nehemiah, but we will open in Nehemiah. Let's start in Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It was in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. At the time, I was in the palace complex of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, had just arrived from Judah with some fellow Jews. I asked them about the conditions among the Jews there there who had survived the exile and about Jerusalem. They told me the exile survivors who are left there in the province are in bad shape. Conditions are appalling. The wall of Jerusalem is still rubble. The city gates are still cinders. When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for days fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, this story is set after the Babylonians declared war on Jerusalem and Israel. And this war, it was gruesome, it was bloody, and it left all of Jerusalem in complete ruins. The temple that King Solomon, son of King David, had built, this beautiful temple that represented a real place of worship for them it was left in ruins this place where they went to uh, confess their sins where they went to uh, get close to God um, throughout their years it was left in ruins Jerusalem was left in ruins and devastatingly a lot of the citizens of Jerusalem and Israel were sent into exile by the um, by the uh, Babylonians There's a moment where uh, years after the exile, they start to come back to Jerusalem and to uh, their homeland. And they begin to uh, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city that they were in before. As they rebuild, this is how you know their temple was so crucial and so important to them. They, They begin the process of rebuilding it. And they had just laid the foundations of it. Nothing else. No windows, no doors, no walls, nothing. Just the foundations had been laid. But they had seen what that meant and what that represented. And they were so excited that they took a moment to start praising God for what he was already doing. This is how special this place was for them. And so when it was left in devastation and when it was completely ruined, it represented a real physical thing, a physical representation of their distance with God. This holy place of theirs was left in ruins. So um, they get sent into exile. And this book that we are reading from picks up about 50 years after the fall of Jerusalem or the exile of the Israelites. And it tells the story of the Israelites coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild their lives, rebuild their city, and rebuild uh, what God had already given them. The rebuild has three key leaders. 
all right? Now, these are some cool names in here, so I'm going to have you repeat them with me, all right? Somebody say Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel is also an especially cool name because I'm going to let you in on a little secret. So for uh, those of you who don't know, I am not from this great country of um, America. I am Eritrean. Eritrea is a small country in Africa right next to Ethiopia. That's why uh, I, I look Ethiopian. That's why I got my skin complexion right here. And... Um, our names are completely different to how names are structured here. So when a child is born, they get given a first name. Their middle name becomes their dad's first name. And their last name is their grandpa's first name. All right. So my first name is Mateos or Maddie, as you know me. My dad's first name is Alexander. My grandpa's first name is Gebra Christos. So if I had a little son, he would be Billy Bob Mateos Alexander. She would not, my wife would not let me name him Billy Bob, but um, it would be Billy Bob Mateos Alexander. That's how it's structured. And so the name Zerubbabel is actually in my family, but it is seven names or six names removed from me. So my name, get ready for it. My name goes Mateos Alexander Gebra Christos Mesmer Kinfe Zerubbabel. Right. And so... I will not write that down, not right now, but someday I will. So Zerubbabel, say Zerubbabel. Okay, so he was the first leader. The second leader was um, Ezra, say Ezra. And the last one was Nehemiah, say Nehemiah. So this book is designed, and I've, I've left it on the graphic there for you. As you go into uh, to, to your Bible to read it, hopefully this week, you are able to kind of see uh, where each story begins and where each story Ends. And so this book, this unified work that we're talking about is designed to focus on the efforts of each leader in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. In part one, Zerubbabel leads the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. In part two, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the people uh, the Torah or the Bible, the scripture of the day, and rebuild the spiritual uh, part of the community. And then Nehemiah arrives in part three or in the final part of this rebuild. And he arrives after Ezra and he leads the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. There's a parallel in each one of these stories that um, we get to experience as we read this book. And each one, the parallel is that each one begins with a king of Persia prompted by God to send a leader. And, and, and each king offers help and support. He sends resources. He sends armies to help with the rebuild. Then each leader arrives. There is great excitement at the hope of this rebuild that goes on. And each leader, soon after the rebuild starts, faces opposition, which they all overcome. But they overcome in a way that leads into a strange anticlimax for each one of these stories. And so, in some ways, as we get to look at the story of Nehemiah, we're also covering Ezra and Zerubbabel because these stories really do reflect one another. And they point to a cycle that goes on over and over with the people of God. And that's something that we're going to be talking about a little bit later. But by the time Nehemiah enters the story, it's after decades of trying to rebuild Jerusalem physically and spiritually. 
This rebuild, like I said, was met with opposition and met with complications. And before we keep reading, let me invite you to keep the framework that Pastor Dennis shared with us over the last two weeks. As we dive into biblical stories and as we read throughout, we want to be asking the question, who is the hero in this story? Who is the villain in this story? Who is the guide in this story? And who is the victim in this story? So we don't have to go through all that. But as we read it, I want to encourage you to keep exercising that muscle of thinking, okay, what am I reading here? That way you get a little bit more comfortable with reading your Bible. You get more comfortable with talking about your Bible with those that are around you, your family, your kids, your uh, people that you work with. I just want you to be comfortable in knowing what your Bible holds. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay, let's keep reading. So in, we're still in chapter 1. And we're in verses 5 and 6 now of Nehemiah. I said, God, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, loyal to his covenant and faithful to those who love him and obey his commands. Look at me. Listen to me. Pay attention to this prayer of your servant that I am praying day and night in intercession for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. And I'm including myself, I and my ancestors among those who have sinned against you. We've treated you like dirt. We haven't done what you've told us, haven't followed your commands, and haven't respected the decisions you gave to Moses, your servant. All the time, remember the warning you posted to your servant Moses. If you betray me, I'll scatter you to the four winds. But if you come back to me, and do what I tell you, I'll gather up all these scattered peoples from wherever they ended up and put them back in the place I chose to mark with my name. Well, there they are, your servants, your people whom you so powerfully and impressively redeemed. Oh, master, listen to me. Listen to your servant's prayer. And yes, to all your servants who delight in honoring you and make me successful today so that I get what I want from the king. I was a cupbearer to the king. So in this moment, we get to meet Nehemiah and we get to get a good insight into his life. When we meet him, he is serving in the Persian government. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. Now, that's not really a role that any of us have here today, but a cupbearer held a high office and ranking in the um, cabinet or in the office of the king or in the, in the court of the king. Nehemiah was somebody who was highly trusted by the king. Um, his principal job was to guard the wine that the king would drink. Uh, he would guard it against poison. And many times somebody who was a cupbearer would have to taste the wine before the king did so that if there was a case of poisoning, they would catch it before it ever got to the king. So this is a man who is trusted by the king, and he hears of this tragedy that's going on in his um, homeland or where his ancestors and, and, and his family's from. And the first thing that he does when he hears about uh, the rebuilding of Israel and, and Jerusalem, the first thing that he does about how, when he hears about what, how it's going is he begins to pray to God. His heart gets broken and he begins to pray. He prays for the people that he is about to serve. Long before he ever goes to serve them, he prays for them. Family, if we take anything away from this first part of this story, it's that 
we should all be. I want to invite you to pray for the people that you serve. The power of a praying parent, the power of a praying teacher, the power of a praying uh, employee, employer, whoever you are, the power of prayer, don't ever underestimate it. I didn't always have a relationship with Jesus. And in fact, when I heard the gospel, I rejected the gospel that I am preaching today. I rejected it for four and a half straight years. I would go to church ignoring every single thing that was taught to me. And in that time, I didn't have a relationship with Jesus, but what I did have was a praying mom. She prayed for me day and night that I would get to come to a, uh, a, a, a loving and a knowledge of uh, Jesus and who he is so that, I would, so that he would he, uh, reveal himself to me and I would get to walk in the purpose and in the um, will that he had for me. A praying mom is what I had, and all my life I've had it. And so if you're a parent in here and you may have a teenager or you may have a child and you may not be happy about how, you know, they're going about their ways, you might be thinking, well, they're not, you know, they don't seem so interested in, in what's going on at the bridge or in our family devotional time. I want to encourage you to be a praying parent, whether you are a student, uh, a teammate, a friend, no matter who you are, be a person of prayer and pray for those that you get to serve. You saw Matt Fretcher walking around taking pictures in here. The amount of times over the years that I get to see Pastor Dennis pull up those pictures from Sunday mornings and he sees all these random Bridge family faces and the second he sees them, he begins to pray for them. Lord, I pray that so-and-so is walking in the uh, purpose that you have called them today. It's been modeled out for me through my own mother, through my own pastor. I get to see it every single day. And so I want to encourage you that the power of prayer is real. And, 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 and Jesus has called us to be intercessors for those that we get to serve. And so Nehemiah takes a moment and he just prays for Israel. He prays for his people long before he ever gets to serve them. And, 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 and one of the results of that prayer, we get to read it now as we keep reading. Now we're in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, and it starts like this. It was in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. At the hour for, uh, for serving wine, I brought it in and gave it to the king. I had never been hangdog in his presence before. So he asked me, why the long face? You're not sick, are you? Or are you depressed? That made me all the more agitated. And I said, long live the king. And why shouldn't I be depressed when the city, the city where my family is buried, is in ruins and the city gates have been reduced to cinders? The king then asked me, so what do you want? Praying under my breath to the God of heaven, I said, if it please the king and if, it, if the king thinks well of me, send me to Judah to the city where my family is buried so that I can rebuild it. The king with the queen sitting right beside him, right alongside him said, how long will your work take and when would you expect to return? I gave him a time and the king gave me his approval to send me. And then I said, if it pleases the king, provide me with the letters to, with letters to the governors across the Euphrates that authorize my travel through to Judah. And also an order to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, to supply me with timber for the beams of the temple fortress, the wall of the city, and the house where I'll be living. The generous hand of my God was with me, and in this, with me in this, and the king gave them to me. When I, made the, when I met the governors across the river, I showed them the king's letters. The king even sent along a cavalry support. 
escort. Can I tell you one thing about that, uh, one thing that is unique about the position that you're in today if you're a Jesus follower? If you're a Jesus follower, you have an ear with the king. The king values you. He sees you. He cares about you. The things that break your heart break his heart. The things that give you joy give him joy. And so he's equipped you, and when he has sent you out to do his good works, he has sent you his Calvary support as well. Let's keep reading. We're in chapter 4 now. The rebuilding has started. The moment that Nehemiah shows up, the people in Jerusalem get to see this awesome escort that he's uh, brought with him. And they say, well, the Lord has clearly ordained this. And they get excited, and the rebuilding starts. It starts, and then the haters come along. When Samballat, Tobiah, the, the, the uh, Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repairs of the walls of Jerusalem were going so well, that the breaks in the wall were being fixed, they were absolutely furious. They put their heads together and decided to fight against Jerusalem and create as much trouble as they could. We countered with prayer to, God, to our God and set a round-the-clock guard against them. Let me pause here for a second. We're not going to go into all the strategies that Nehemiah and his people employ and deploy to, um, to fight the haters that show up, to the, the people who were making threats against them and who thought, who were doubters and said that this project would never, ever be finished. The strategies that they use are incredible. And so I... Um, I encourage you throughout this week, just spend time in the word throughout the books of uh, Israel and Nehemiah and see what kind of strategies they use. Um, and, and the book of Nehemiah has been used over and over as something to uh, equip leaders with. It's a leadership book in many ways. And so for all of us, as we lead our lives, lead our families and everything else that we lead, um, it will be awesome for us to be equipped with some of the strategies that they have. That's not our focus today, though, so we're going to keep moving. Um, but soon word was going around in Judah, verse 10. The builders are pooped. The rubbish piles up. We're, we're in over our heads, and we can't build this wall. Verse 11. In all this time, our enemies were saying they won't know what hit them. Before they know it, we're going to be at their throats, killing them right and left. That will put, an, uh, that will put a stop to the work. The Jews who were uh, their neighbors kept reporting, they have us surrounded. They're going to attack. If we heard it once, we heard it ten times. So this, uh, this group of people get really excited about this awesome rebuilding project that's going to go on, right? At the hope of what this represents. And then uh, the, the rebuilding project starts, but the haters come and they start to say, well, you're never going to be able to finish this. We're going to come and we're going to declare war on you. And so then the people that were rebuilding with Nehemiah start to get distracted. And they say, well, we're tired. Well, we're sick. We're not strong enough. They're going to come in and they're going to kill us. They start to look at the environments around them and they start to be distracted from the project that um, they started. This project that God had ordained for them to begin and complete. And so I want to let you know that whenever you have a rebuilding project, whenever you have something under construction, I want to let you know that 
opposition is coming if it's not already here? What needs rebuilding in your life? Is it relationships? Is it finances? Is it a career? Is it your spiritual life with Jesus? From my own experience, every single time I have made a commitment to go a bit deeper with Jesus, that's when the spiritual attacks come. Every single time I have made a commitment to go deeper in my relationship with my wife or any other thing that I declare, you know what, this is going to be, um, this is going to be a new thing for me. I'm going to hit new heights in these things. I'm going to rebuild what has already been ruined. That's when the enemy comes in stronger than ever because he knows he wants to keep you where you are and doesn't want you to attain new levels. And so I encourage you to dive deep into the specifics of Nehemiah chapters 5, chapter 6, and 7 as there's so much that you'll be able to get from the strategy, from, uh, strategy from the focus and personal leadership that he shows us in it. The way that Nehemiah deals with, uh, the I keep calling them the haters, but the way that he deals with the haters that were trying to distract, it was truly remarkable. So remarkable that not only does he find a way to stay out of the war that they wanted, to, they wanted him to get into, he also completes the rebuilding project in 52 days. What I would like to focus on, though, is this parallel that I've been talking about in each one of these stories. So, in Nehemiah's case, the project is completed. And each one of these stories has a positive end to it. While Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple physically... Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring a spiritual renewal, and they make Jerusalem a fortress again by rebuilding the wall. <clears throat> there is a confession of sin that happens among the people, a covenant renewal with God and a commitment to one another. There is a vow to follow the Torah, to follow the scripture that they had been reading. And there is a great celebration that marks a brand new beginning for Israelites in Jerusalem after years of rubble and exile. There are some negative things that happen as well as the, each one of these stories conclude. Zerubbabel's work becomes undone as he finds the temple completely neglected by all these people who are unqualified to take care of it. Ezra's work becomes undone as, uh, remember Ezra was the one who was rebuilding the community when it comes to the teaching of the Torah, but his work becomes undone as the people now begin to work on the Sabbath and they violate a lot of the commandments that God had given them. And Nehemiah's work becomes undone as people begin setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and they turn this fortress of a place into a cheap marketplace for their own profits and for their own gains. And each one of this, these stories begins with so much hope, but it ends with the leader in disappointment. The leader having this anger towards the people that they were serving. Israel is back in their land, they're back in Jerusalem, but their spiritual state seems completely unchanged to how we met them at the beginning of the story when they were in exile still in spiritual exile and in spiritual wilderness. The common thread is the construction comes to a halt. The people are together in Israel, but Israel and Nehemiah's political and social reforms don't ever address the core spiritual issues of their heart. And so if I'm asking, Lord, what do you want us to take from this, from this unified work, from this book, um, it's, it's, he, he's saying it's one thing and one thing only. 
This is the same thing that the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel keep warning the people of Israel against. And he says that it takes a whole transformation of the heart to finish the construction. It takes a whole transformation of the heart to finish the construction. You see, if you've been in any of our Discovery Bible study groups uh, throughout this year, you would have seen that there is a pattern emerging with Israelites. The Israelites uh, come to a place where they're comfortable with God and they start rejecting him. They start rebelling against him. They start going their own ways. The book of Judges over and over says everybody was doing whatever they felt was right in their own eyes in those days. And so the Lord says, okay, so if I'm not going to have your attention, he brings in something that gets their attention back on him again. Over and over, maybe an outside force comes in and declares war in the nation of Israel. Maybe they get, ta- they get taken captive or maybe it's some sort of disaster that comes in. And at the end of each one of those events, the Israelites start crying out to God for help. And they say, Lord, please deliver us from this. And when you deliver us, we're going to keep your commandments. We are going to stay close to you. We are going to be dedicated to you over and over and over. You see this. And so the interesting thing about this book is that we get to see this cycle begin, end, and begin again through this group of people that were rebuilding Israel. God sends them a hero. So you think Abraham, you think Joseph, you think Moses, David, Gideon, um, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and so on. The hero helps them see their need for God and cry out, and God restores the beauty of Israel and its people. Then once things become good again, they begin to rebel against God, setting off that cycle all over again. We get to see this pattern over and over again, and it points to that, uh, to the fact that we all need this spiritual and heart transformation. In other words, a need for an everlasting Savior that ends the cycle once and for all. Someone who can renew their hearts, someone who can renew our hearts on the daily. And that's Jesus. I look at the story of Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Ezra, and it's all written there, the need for Jesus. My Discovery Bible group, which I am so proud of, um, a few weeks ago we were talking about the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And somebody in my, uh, in my group pointed the fact that when Jesus comes in and he's He's doing all of his teachings. He is dealing with so many hard issues. And even as he talks, as he references the, old, uh, the, the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament, he says, everything that needs to change is your heart issues. A transformation of the heart is needed. He says, um, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and 7, we find the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever told by Jesus. And in this sermon, he keeps saying over and over this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Whenever he says, you have heard it said, he recognized the established way that they have been living. But when he says, but I say to you, he's saying, I am introducing a whole new way of living for you. He says, you have heard it said that you shall not murder, but I say to you that anyone who has anger in their heart towards their brother has already committed murder in their heart. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that anybody who looks at a woman uh, with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. 
You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, what Jesus deals with is heart transformation. A lot of what we keep seeing in the story that we read is behavior modification. It is excitement about what is the potential. It's excitement about what's to come. And so people get all excited. They get together. They start rebuilding. And then as soon as the excitement leaves, they fall back to their old ways. But when there is a daily connection to Jesus, a daily um, appearance at the foot of the cross where you say, Lord, I surrender to you this day. Please show me what you want me to say, what you want me to do, what you want, where you want me to go on this day. When, then, when there's a daily commitment like that, then the excitement doesn't go away. And the excitement was never, ever the thing that actually fuels the project. It was never the thing that fuels the construction and the reconstruction of the thing that you and I need to reconstruct in our lives. If you and I can be heroes in our own walk, if we can be heroes in our family's lives or wherever we may be, it has to be under one condition. And this might be cheesy, but Jesus has to be our superhero. And as cheesy as it is, if everything is laid on the foundation that is Jesus, nothing can and nothing will be able to shake it. There has to be a daily commitment to him where we say, Lord, my life is under construction. Where Whatever your will is, let it be done. So Jesus, help me see what I need to see. Help me say what I need to say. Help me go where I need to go and help me hear what I need to hear. Help me say yes to the right things and help me say no to the things that I need to say no to. In what areas of your life has the construction been paused? Where has it stopped? Where does it look like it's been completed, but really it's not? These are the areas that I would like us to invite Jesus into. These are the areas that Jesus needs to come into and deal with. So Pastor Dennis over the past few weeks shared with us um, a hero's declarations where he says, I am who God says I am. The second one says, I can do what God says I can do. The third one says, I can have what God says I can have. The only way that you and I will be able to say this and walk in it is if there is a daily appearance before Jesus where we say, Jesus, who am I? Show me who I am. Jesus, what are you saying I can do? And what are you saying I can have? And what are you saying I can't have? As you spend more and more time with him, he will define and redefine um, who you are. He will, uh, as you surrender to him and rely on him on the daily, he's going to show you what you can do and what your father in heaven has already said that you can and will do. As you generously live your life, he'll begin to make clear what you can have and what your father in heaven has already said is yours. Pray with me, family. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God that we don't have to define ourselves. We just have to look to you to define who we are. We thank you, Lord, that from this moment forward, we are going to be surrendering to your will. 
and that the construction and reconstruction that happens in our lives isn't going to be fueled by excitement, but it's going to be fueled by truth that comes from you, Lord. It's going to be fueled by surrender. It's going to be fueled by what you're doing in our lives, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as each and every single one of us here begins this um, construction project in our lives, I pray, Lord, that we are able to keep our eyes on you and not the things that come our way to distract. We thank you, Lord, that you love us enough that you have called us back into this glorious place again. And we thank you that you walk with us every single step of the way, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.